I do see a lot of people with the, the symptom substitution, we call it. So, you know, they are swapping one addiction for the other. And the American Psych Association actually says that too much can be different for everybody. So that's when you start to see the diagnostic um, DSM-5 within the guidelines. Like, okay, are you becoming obsessed with this? Is it escalating to like more frequent and more intense? Welcome to Weighing In on Happy, the only podcast that dives deep into discussions around weight, eating disorders, mental health, body image, intuitive eating, wellness, confidence, and so much more. Each week, you'll be coached through different stories and strategies on how to start living your best life today. So if you're ready, here's your host, Victoria Evans. This episode of Weighing In on Happy has been brought to you by my one-on-one coaching program, 90 Days to Food Freedom. If you're looking to stop food fear and guilt so you can eat effortlessly and intuitively, then be sure to apply to my coaching program. You can do that on my website, www.victoriaevansofficial.com forward slash coaching, or you can go ahead and click the link in the show notes below and apply for my one-on-one coaching program there. Hey, you guys, welcome back to Wing and On Happy. My name is Victoria Evans, a science-based intuitive eating coach, and I am so excited, you guys, because I have Deirdre Fusco with me today, and we are going to talk about everything when it comes to recovery, addiction, nutrition, all the things that you think that you didn't need to know that you're going to learn today about how to recover and how to do it in a way that makes sense using a lot of stats, a lot of information, a lot of incredible things. And so I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Victoria. I'm so excited to be here today. Um, I just can't wait to shed some light and um, see where this goes. Um, I'm a licensed practical nurse and nutrition educator actually for Walden Behavioral Health. It's a treatment center in Maryland. Yeah. I'm like, your background coming into this is I'm so excited because I've had a lot of incredible guests on the podcast, but none who quite have your background and your experience. And so I think what you're going to talk about is going to help so many people. And just going into it, can you tell a little bit more just about yourself and your story and kind of how it all fits into what you're doing now around your work and recovery? Thanks. Uh, yeah. So before I started working in the substance abuse field, Uh, I was actually relapsing in my own eating disorder and started to abuse alcohol probably once or twice a week, um, which was very problematic with what I was doing at the time. So I was working in a med surge field as post-operation stuff. Um, I really needed to be on top of my game. So I started to see myself slip and went into treatment, not for myself, but because I was just so afraid of making clinical errors um, with hurting somebody. So I went ahead and I quit my job and went into treatment and it was the best thing I could have done because I had so much insight in treatment, um, realized the importance nutrition had on my mental, emotional health as well as physical. So it wasn't until I met my dietitian there and also the psychiatrist there and I would meet with them twice a week that I started to realize and I got this aha moment like, wow, I... They told me I didn't need medications. This is the first time in my history with my eating disorder that nobody has forced me to take antidepressants, all these other mood and mind altering substances that basically numb myself and made it almost impossible to do the real work in recovery. So Mm -hmm. after treatment, I just decided to 
really look into that and see how I can implement that with the new job that I, I took on, um, after treatment, like six months after treatment. Um, and it's been, it's been really just something I'm very grateful for. Yeah, I love that. And I'm someone as well who came off of the highest level of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds and struggled as well with substance abuse and eating disorders. And I just kind of want to preface as well that for me, I had to, and I, I mean, it's different for everyone, but I always kind of want to like, always have this bit of a disclaimer that if you are someone who's on antidepressants or on anti-anxiety medications or anything like that, like sometimes you, it's important to be on these things to even get yourself to start to do the work. Um, and so you mentioned like you kind of numb yourself out, but I know for myself, like I, it was like, oh, I don't want to lose my spark. But at the same time, if I'm lying in bed every day and could even get out of bed, then it's like, I didn't really have a spark to begin with. <laughs> um, so sometimes it is kind of getting to that place where you can start to do the deeper work. And then I know we're going to dive into more around nutrition and um, other things as well. But just so people know if you are on antidepressants or if you're on anti-anxiety medications or anything like that, like that's not to say that's like bad or anything at all. Um, just always want to kind of have a little disclaimer because I know for myself, I sometimes had a hard time, uh, you know, being on it and then hearing other people talk about it and how they're like, oh, I'm totally free of it now. And always kind of thinking it meant something about me, but knowing, no, like it's, it's what you, if it's what you need, then it's what you need. And there's nothing wrong with that as well. So. Absolutely. And I was going to touch on, um, there's a, there's something that we do in our nursing care plans, which is, um, we base a lot of things on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and that would be something be having your medication in order. Um, physical needs are the very first thing. So the, the Maslow's hierarchy is this, basically it's like a pyramid and it comes in pillars. Um, the first pillar, well, it's five pillars. The first one is the physiological needs. So your medications, your food, water, air, everything that is important to keep you stable physically. Um, so definitely adhere to your medications um, per doctor's orders. Um, don't wean off of them on your own. Uh, but anyways, following from that first pillar is safety, and that would be your finances, living situations, and after that would be love and belonging. So we all feel that need for connection with others. It's very important. Um, the fourth one would be esteem, and that's kind of where your accomplishments would come in. Uh, you know, any personal goals you have for yourself, um, where you are in your life, if you feel like you've accomplished things. And the final one is self-actualization. That's kind of like the nirvana of all of them, like the entire thing. So it is fulfillment, I guess. Um, to me, that would be like the ultimate wellness. And it's very hard to get to that point, not just from like a substance abuse or eating disorder spectrum or anything like that. It's, I think everybody struggles to get to there. Yeah, I love how you're bringing that into it because I think so many people are trying to reach that kind of nirvana that like self-actualization state without addressing any of their basic needs it's like they're trying to just like bunny hop over it all then be like why isn't it working like why can't i feel this way why am i unhappy all the time why am i irritable why am i struggling with substance abuse and uh you know eating disorders and it's like okay well are any of your needs being met right now like at the the base level at that bottom part of that that tier and 
oftentimes I know we're going to dig into the Minnesota starvation study, but like it's, if you aren't, you know, like you said, having that shelter, if you're not feeling safe, if you don't have enough food to eat, if you're not meeting those basic things, then it's impossible for your body to allow you to reach a self, like a state of self-actualization because your body's concerned with survival. And if the nutrients aren't being met, there's no way that you're going to go off and think really amazing, cool things and feel like you're achieving your life purpose because your brain is just like, uh, no, we don't get to that point until we're actually able to just survive as we are. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is 100%. I couldn't agree more. Um, so there, yeah, there, I mean, there's a holistic approach to everything. And there's also a holistic impact on, you know, the opposite when the body is being starved. Um, so with the Minnesota starvation experience, uh, experiment, that was, it was a study that was done in the late forties by this guy, Ansel Keys. He was a scientist back then. He was initially studying, it was a very minor study that was supposed to be out on the impact of world war two and how, you know, a little bit of food deprivation can impact a person, but come to find out it had, you know, physical, emotional, behavioral, spiritual, um, everything was impacted on these individuals being starved in the study. Um, so I, I'd like to talk about that because yeah. it was, it became actually one of the most crucial studies in history as terms to like diet and uh, starvation. It's so fascinating to me because when you look at the numbers of it, so it's like, uh, I think it was saying like the first few months of the study, they were eating like around like 3,200 calories, I think a day. And then following that, I think that the next six months, it was like 1,500 calories or so. And then after that, it was like, I think down to two or 3,000. So fun, it's like, funnily enough, that is so much more than what a lot of people actually diet on today. So it's funny, it's like called the, like the starvation diet, like the study. And yet we have so many women who are going on these like 1,100, 1,200, 1,000 calorie diets a day, wondering why they're self-sabotaging and why they're out of control around food. It's like, you are doing so much more damage to your body than what they were purposely trying to do in this experiment to see the effects of starvation on the body. And it's like, that was considered, you know, inhumane and putting these people through this and like not giving them enough calories. And yet we have, you know, people today who are eating just a fraction of that and you know the diet industry and social media is perpetuating these insane diets and then putting it on the person telling them oh well yeah you, you, i don't know why you're out of control like it's weird that you're binging this way you just need to have more willpower and more motivation it's like no your body's literally starving and something like binging is a response to extreme restriction and you know it it's just it blows my mind how it, we're, we're through this study, and this was so long ago, it's so clear that it's the deprivation of calories that was the issue, and yet it's 2020, and we're having it kind of reflected back that it's the, the individual's issue and not the industry and not the, the starvation effects. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that all of these, the people in the study were healthy men with no mental health issues before, um, so they didn't want to diet. It wasn't that mentality of, oh, I, I need to cut my calories. It was you know, these healthy men and even um, the most interesting part was the 20 week rehabilitation period, which they refed everybody and they started to see the physical changes getting back to a normal body weight. Um, but the subject's mental states were actually further declining in that period of rehabilitation where they actually got more anxious, 
suicidal ideations took place. Um, they were more irritable. They had mood swings and food rituals increased. So there was actually more people were start were, they started to binge and purge when they never even thought about doing that before. Um, and it became like a means not to really control the weight, but because they were so anxious and they were so out of control with when they were presented food, um, even when they started to refeed, it just became like the hunger was just, you know, off the charts and they began to binge and purge and hide food and all the things that we see in eating disorders today. Yeah. It, this study is so fascinating and I wish that, and I'm so glad we're talking about it because I wish more people knew about it. I wish more people understood it. And I think even in this society today, we, we talk about like wellness, you know, as, as if it was like a different thing than dieting. Like we, I think there's so many trends around like, you know, eating the specific things like the green smoothies and all of this and the goji berries, like whatever. And we've tried to frame restriction into like intermittent fasting and like change the word is around, try to make it this new, like fresh 2020 thing. And it's like at the core of it, it's just, it's just restriction. It's just another fancy way to enable a way of trying to control and shrink ourselves and fit ourselves into some kind of societal mold. And it's so clear that it doesn't work and it hasn't worked. And we just keep slapping on new fancy terms for it. And like you said, like the mental health aspect of it is insane, insane. Like I know for myself, when I was not getting enough calories into my body, I felt completely out of control, which was, it just destroyed my sense of self-worth, my sense of self-confidence, but as well, my, like my, my mental health, like my suicide attempts, like I was cutting, I was, I was not even myself. And I, then I, and then it compounds on this idea of needing food to seek comfort and other substances to kind of numb out from it because it becomes, it becomes like a, a downward spiral can almost feel like, cause it all kind of feeds into each other and it can feel so overwhelming and it can just be simply kicked off by the deprivation of food. And it's not like, um, you know, we, we take it sometimes to mean like, oh, we're, we're so broken. There's something wrong with us. Why can't I control myself? And it's like, at the core of it, it's like, you're just not eating enough. Like, it's not like there's something, you know, gone horribly off. It's like your biology is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is getting you to eat food because you don't understand that that's the issue and it feels out of control. And by societal standards, we're told like we shouldn't be eating this much. We need to control ourselves. It, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle and it's hard to know what to do with it. And then, yes, mental health. And, you know, for me, like bulimia and the binging, like it was just, it was such a horrible time and it really kicked off with that caloric deprivation. Pretty heavy stuff. It's really heavy stuff. And yet, you know, it's, no one talks about it really. And that's why I'm so grateful to have this podcast and to have this conversation with you because I think it's so easily just like blaseed over as oh, I just need to do better. I need to have more willpower. And it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our body trying to keep us alive. And, and something like the Minnesota, Minnesota starvation study is just a reflection of what happens when we try to deprive ourselves, as well as it deprives ourselves, like you said before, like of getting to any kind of state of fulfillment and self-actualization. Like I see so many you know, women who spend their life trying to shrink their body, which means like mentally, they don't have the, like nutritionally, their brain cannot function, their body cannot function. So there's no way they can get to a state of kind of like achieving their purpose and, you know, 
like reaching their potential because their brain is just like, hey, if you're going to only give us this amount of food, then all we're going to do all day is think about food. Like we're going to become obsessed with food and people who struggle with, you know, substance and, you know, food, it's like, that's all you can often think about. It takes over your brain because you're so nutritionally deprived, which means there's no way you're showing up as a friend. You're not showing up as a family member. You're not showing up in your career. You're nothing. You become whatever that is, that substance, that food, because your brain is not getting to, like, it's not kind of regulating through the levels to get to that sense of self-actualization. And the irony of it is that often we are trying to like change our body and look a certain way so that we can feel connected and loved and like we're good enough. But by doing that, we are depriving the world of those things because all we can do is focus on food. (laughs) It's like, ah. Hate the word willpower. It is absolutely one of one of my most hated words because of that. And also, I mean, you you see that with the diet industry, but yet, like when it comes to substance abuse, we know that there is no willpower when it comes to addiction. So I don't know why that bridge can't be gapped. I think it's. I mean, it's such a clever way for the diet industry to instill an, enough hope in you while also shaming you, right? I think it's like this like very, like a a fine balance where it's like, well, if we put it on you as your problem, and then that means that we can also feed you these little tidbits of solutions where, oh, your body type is this, and that's why it didn't work for you. And oh, if you just try to fast between these windows, and that's, that was the issue because you're blah, blah, blah. And so like, it almost can just keep you just reaching for a little bit more while keeping you feeling like you have such like a low sense of self-worth because you didn't have enough willpower that you're always kind of striving for the next thing. So it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I call it keeping that false hope that, you know, your life will be perfect in six months. Just do this. Hey, you guys, I wanted to quickly hop in here and give a quick shout out to my past client S she said, Victoria was an amazing coach to work with. I looked forward to that sacred hour I had per week to discuss my problems and worries, and she was more than a friend who listened to me with so much empathy. She had gone through it all herself. It was so easy to explain to her my worries because she just got them. She lived them. She was super organized, and I love this about her. Her corporate background melded so well with mine, her well-taken notes, her taping the calls, her constant attention to detail. Her organized approach was everything and more I needed in my busy life. Thank you so much for that incredible feedback. And now back to the episode. There's no top of the mountain that you reach when it comes to dieting. Like there is just like, you're not even going to get to the top because you're going to be so tired because you're not going to have energy. You're just going to be like halfway up. You're just going to be like out of breath. You're like, Frig, I'm exhausted. <laughs> like, and then your brain is going to try to convince you. You're like, oh yeah, when you get there, then it'll be worth it. Then it'll be good. And it's funny, I see so often, even for myself, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, once I reach this goal weight, then all of a sudden it's like my life would be okay and things would start happening, whatever. Like, you know, I can't go out for dinner tonight. I'm canceling these plans, whatever, because I have to make sure that I have my, you know, my food that's been weighed on my scale. That is a very, you know, low caloric amount. And in my brain, I I'd kind of made this equation that once I'd reached a goal weight, then I'd be allowed to start eating normal foods again. I'd start to be able to eat like a normal amount of food again, but it doesn't happen that way. It's not like you wake up one day, you're like, well, I'm at my goal weight. And so now all these like disordered behaviors are going to go away. It's like, no, it just steadily gets worse. Your life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. My exercise, you know, habits became more intense. My caloric restriction became more intense. The things I was quote unquote allowed to eat became more like restricted 
And there was never a point where all of a sudden it was like, and now I have freedom and body freedom and now I feel confident. Like the more I continued on this pathway, the more that my, you know, nutritionally I was deprived, the smaller the world, my, my world became, the worse my mental health became, um, you know, my worst, my struggles with alcohol and drugs became. So there was never going to be this point where I was like, well, it's all good now because I've reached this weight. It was like, it's just, it's just like a horrible downward spiral that your brain has tried, is trying to convince you that you're going to get to a point where it's good because society has told us, you know, in the after picture, everything is great before she's not smiling and she's in the harder body. It's terrible. After it's great. Everything's perfect. And it's just the biggest lie. So if anyone is listening to this who thinks that you're going to reach a goal weight and just be like, now I can start living like girl, get out now because it's such a lie. Like eat, nourish your body and know like you, you deserve to take up space in this world. You deserve to eat because we need you. The world needs you and you can't be doing what you need to be doing. If you don't have enough energy in your body, AKA calories, nutrition to be doing that. Yeah. There's so many physical ramifications too that happen, not just mentally, but I mean, you're, you're, gastrointestinal motility stops almost. You get, get this thing called gastroparesis. We see that a lot in nursing with substance abuse and eating disorders where your metabolism almost stops. Um, you can't eat even if you want to again. Um, and then also there's, pre, there's changes that happen in the brain. There's physical changes with the prefrontal cortex and that starts to shrink the more you engage in these behaviors. Yeah. And the prefrontal cortex is really kind of like that CEO, executive, high functioning, best version of you. Like that's the state you really want to be operating out of uh, in terms of really being in that kind of self-actualization and all of that. And if you're not nutritionally eating enough, you're really not making it out of that kind of that primitive kind of state where it's just like, we just need food right now. <laughs> that's all we can think about. That's all we're going to do. And so, yeah, you're just, uh, you're a fraction of who you could be. And because of that, you're not even able to see what you could be it's kind of, it's almost like you have on blinders. Like you've seen those horses blinders on. It's like when you're not getting enough food, you have blinders on to the world around you because nutritionally you can't see it because you are so deprived. You're so right about that. <laughs> yeah. And so I would love to understand a little bit more. What is the relationship between poor nutrition and substance abuse? So we see clients enter treatment a lot with severe micronutri micronutrient deficiencies. Uh, with alcohol, you, you have a lot of B1, which is thymine, and that's that actually is a lot to do with your cognition. That we see also in eating, in eating disorders, but with that being um, a deficiency, you're going to have a lot of problems concentrating, remembering things. Um, there's also a magnesium deficiency, um, vitamin K, which you're going to see bruising a lot on clients because they can't clot normally. Um, that, those factors have been, uh, you know, um, compromised. So, and then with opiates, uh, you have, um, like I said, you know, a reduced uh, GI motility, um, reduced metabolism. Everything basically slows down with opiates, um, including respirations, which is really dangerous. Uh, you, you get less hungry, um, often miss meals because either you're passing out or um, unfortunately, you know, you're just not hungry. Um, and also a lot of people end up choosing their the drug of choice over quality food because, you know, financially too, if you're in a pinch, you're probably going to want to choose your drug over food. Um, so we do see a lot of nutritional problems. Um, dehydration is huge too. <laughs> And that, of course, you know, you can't think properly if you're dehydrated. 
Oh yeah. It's <laughs> funny. It's like, uh, and I know we're going to talk about halt later with the hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Um, but even for me, I'm also thinking like, if I'm hungry, if I'm hot, if I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm tired, or I'm thirsty. Like the T is also like a tired and thirsty. Like all those things fit into each other. So I'm like, if I'm tired, if I'm thirsty, and if I'm hot, like if I'm too warm, like all those things, like I'm, I'm not me, I'm dizzy, I am like, it's, it's, yeah, it's so important to think about these things and take that holistic approach to recovering. And I think so often these really essential, like kind of these basic things, like, okay, let's look at nutrition. Is your brain getting enough food is getting enough of the nutrition that you need your body. And we are so quick to dive into the emotional side of things, which again is so crucial and so essential, but it has to be both. Like, I think it has to be that combined effort because as you said before, even when it comes to mental health things, like sometimes you can't even get to do the work around, you know, issues with, for example, anxiety or depression until we're kind of like out of that hole to even do that work. And so sometimes with, you know, that is taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety, but as well, when it comes to recovering and sometimes it's like getting that baseline of nutrition up in order to even do some of the other emotional work that maybe had kicked off the issues around, you know, substance abuse or eating disorders in the first place. Right. And I mean, if you are feeling like crap physically because you're hungry or you're tired, or like you said, too hot temperature irregulated, which I mean, when you're dehydrated too, that affects your temperature regulation in your body. Um, when you're feeling like crap, you're, it's very hard to stay successful in treatment and okay. long-term after treatment. I was thinking about that specifically. I was coming back today from the dermatologist and I'm, I'm in Bali right now recording this and I was on my scooter and it was like my motorbike scooter. And it was like, I don't even know, like 35 degrees Celsius today. It was so hot. And I had my face mask on, I had my helmet on and I had like, and I was like sitting on my bike. My bike is like a leather seat and it's just like dripping, you know, when you're like sweating the back of your thighs. And I was just like, I was just so grumpy at the world and angry. And like, it wasn't like, Oh, I want to go home and you know, nourish my body. It was like, I want to go and eat like a tub of ice cream. And then I want to sit in air conditioning. And then I just want to like vegetate and do nothing. <laughs> like, like, man, it's like a whole, like, you know, I think about that Snickers commercial. It's like, when you're not new, you're not you when you're hungry. And I'm like, I'm not me when I'm hot either. Like, <laughs> just like not good. Um, but anyways, that was kind of a side tangent on that. Um, but what would you say could really be done to help improve nutrition problems in recovery? Uh, well, I would definitely recommend if they could possibly afford a registered dietitian in recovery centers. It's, I mean, for eating disorders, that's, that's, you know, definitely set in stone, but for addiction recovery, we don't see that. Um, and we, you know, I advocate for a registered dietitian. I advocate for better foods served because they are often not served fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, but you know, if we can't do that, there's also other approaches. You can hire a nutritional coach, which I'm currently training for, um, to be certified and board certified with. Um, but I lead nutrition groups as well. So weekly I do like a nutritional education group on either what substance can affect you nutritionally or how your nutrition can affect your mood or your sleep, uh, just to give some clients more insight. So then they know how important it is to take care of themselves physically. Um, but those things, uh, education is huge. Um, also, I don't know if maybe monitoring their weekly weight, kind of like we see in treatment centers for eating disorders, 
not every day, but um, on a weekly basis, if clients are at risk for something, um, either overeating, undereating, one of those things that that can be addressed before it becomes an issue. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's interesting. Weight and managing weight, it's like, it's such a controversial issue. And it's interesting to always understand people's approaches to it. And I think at the core of it though, is even as a society, aside from kind of anything else, we need to just stop placing our worth on our weight. Like, it's just like, we need to kind of separate the two as it were, because we put so much emphasis and, you know, like, even, like, I don't even know how many years ago, probably like maybe what years of 2020, um, I don't know, like maybe a hundred years ago, uh, was when, you know, everything, and maybe I'm totally out of context with this, maybe it's longer, but like everything was custom made for people for the most part. And so there wasn't so much of an emphasis on like size and, uh, dress clothes, like clothing size and everything. So it was like everything, everyone was kind of their own shape and it didn't mean something if you were like in a medium or a large, you know, um, as well as when it came to like the scale, it's, it was like invented by an astronomer and sorry, it was invented and I think about BMI, BMI was invented by an astronomer, I believe. And then it was, you know, pushed by pharmaceutical companies. And then, but then when it comes to the scale, like it wasn't really widespread in doctor's offices until it was kind of pushed through with pharmaceutical companies. So there was never really an around weight and size, it was never really about health until it became something that was used through companies that were trying to push it for their own kind of gain, not for like the benefit of society. So kind of encompassing basically what I'm trying to say there is that we've, as a society, conditioned ourselves to believe that our worth is our weight. And that's been basically fed through a, fed to us through companies that would profit off us believing that to be true. When the studies show like it actually there's not really a correlation between that and i prescribed like the health at every size and understanding that uh, you know mindset which is showing like if you are in a you know average to a slightly larger body according to bmi um, standards which bmi is total bullshit but anyways um it shows that we're actually tend to be a bit healthier and then if you're would to be kind of normal and or underweight by those standards so it's always so interesting to think about just like weight and how we've put so much into it when at the core of it, there's really no kind of evidence to support that it should be something that is so hyper-focused on. But as it relates to what we're talking about, it's good to kind of track if someone is, you know, severely underweight or their weight is like really kind of all over the place, really fluctuating, like there's something maybe going on there. Yeah. And that's something we have to be very delicate about how we approach it because of, like you said, it's become such a sensitive issue um, so I'm very careful with how I approach patients about that. And usually it, it will come into, you know, face-to-face -face conversation. Nobody else is around and I'll say, okay, do you have any concerns uh, nutritionally that you want to address at this point? Do you have any concerns about your eating habits or your weight? And then I leave it like an open-ended question like that. Not like, okay, I've seen that, um, you know, you put on some pounds this week or, <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, very, very careful with how I approach that matter because people are either very sensitive about the issue or they can become very sensitive about the issue, the way that you word it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you said that and the way that you kind of leave it open, because I think there's so many women and even myself included where when my weight became a topic at 
you know, doctor's appointments or even in university after an assault, I had put on some weight as a way to almost like kind of protect myself and create an armor around myself. And I remember the athletic trainer making a comment about my weight being like, oh, you've put on weight. You look, you're having the same back problems like the linebackers in the NFL do, you know, like you're they all like, you know, that's probably putting a lot of pressure on your joints. And he was coming at it from a sense of kind of like, oh, this is why you're having these issues. But for me, like making it about the weight and like having to, you know, lose weight, just there was so much shame and there was so much embarrassment having this like male, you know, athletic coach, athletic trainer talking to me. My coach was there. My, you know, I was just so embarrassed. And that just led to a whole other slew of issues and bulimia really took off and all these other things because I was so ashamed and, and, you know, having other people in the healthcare industry like yourself who are taking this approach where they're very mindful of how they address things and how they talk about things is so important. So I'm excited that, you know, you're doing this kind of work and we're having this conversation because I think it's essential, essential for healthcare professionals to be so mindful of how they approach it because they can be causing a lot of trauma and, and you know, their intention is generally good, but it can have such negative consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, and I'm so sorry that happened to you when you were that age, because I can imagine, I mean, when you're a young woman, you're, you know, a teenager or any, any teenager suffers with self-esteem issues or getting recognized by their peers and starting to develop a sense of self, that's hard. Um, and, you know, for my clientele too, it's, it, I noticed there's also self-esteem issues there. Um, so it's definitely something that needs to be approached mindfully. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the core of it so much of this is like, I'm not enough, self-esteem issues that stems from a lot of our, you know, disordered eating substance. And so when it's tackled as a weight issue, it's like, it's just compounds on it, right? Like, it's like, oh man, we're just going in the opposite direction of where we want to be going. And, uh, but with that said, I know I want to talk about what is like structured eating and what does that mean? What does that look like? And kind of how does that relate back to our relationship with nutrition and substance abuse? Um, so early on in recovery, I think structured eating is more important than intuitive eating um, in both eating disorder and substance abuse recovery because we're still repairing a lot of tissue damage, uh, brain cells, all that kind of thing. I think it's important there. And most clients aren't going to be hungry the first, you know, few weeks, months into treatment. So um, even eating when you're not hungry. So having for everybody, it's different. It could be either three meals a day or three small meals and three snacks, um, but making sure that you're eating almost on a, almost on a schedule. So every three hours at most three to four hours in between, um, not going too long without eating and making sure that you have at least, um, a protein, a fat and a carbohydrate with every meal that you're eating. Uh, those are definitely important in recovery. Uh, the fruits and vegetables, I know we are very adamant about that in our culture, but they're very, um, they're not as, they're not as important as the complex carbohydrates that somebody might be missing. Um, Cause that's the 65% of our energy right there comes from carbohydrates. Oh, and there's such a demonization of carbs in our culture and it makes me so sad and angry. And like, I, first of all, they're just friggin' delicious. And it makes me so sad that I didn't have them for so long. <laughs> Like, oh man, I have like a potato a day. Like I'm just that girl. Like it's, and they're so good and they give you energy, right? Like 
for me, it's funny. It's like how I know I'm not eating enough food is if I'm thinking about food all the time and carbohydrates and the lack thereof, it, it, like if I'm not eating enough carbs throughout the day, like I'm just going to be thinking about food, like just point blank. And so if you're someone who thinks that you're obsessed with food, there's a good chance that nutritionally you have been deprived of certain key things and looking at that and being like, Hey, am I getting enough of those basic needs met right now? Because that can quite simply be what it is and not need it to be kind of anything more about, you know, who you are as a person and your self-worth and everything. It can just be simply, yeah, you're just not eating enough. Hello, hello. I wanted to again hop in here because I wanted to make sure you knew that I actually have a few spots open for my November start of my one-on-one coaching program, 90 Days to Food Freedom. Now, these spots are going to go fast and I'm letting my podcast community know about them first because I so appreciate your support and you guys know my vibe, you know my style from listening to me on the podcast. And so if you like what you hear when I am talking, then you're going to absolutely love working with me in this coaching program. So what you're going to want to do is go ahead and check out my website, www.victoriaevansofficial.com forward slash coaching. And there you can apply to work with me. I would absolutely love to guide you through this 90 day program to give you the life that you absolutely deserve, which is freedom. All right, now back to the episode. And I think the inclusion of a dessert too, um, in my own structured eating plan that I was given in residential treatment, uh, it was very crucial. We had desserts two to three times a week, sometimes four times a week. Um, but that kind of helped with including things that are on your fear list, but for people that are in both treatment centers, um, having that kind of like, it almost increases more dopamine in your system because it's a reward kind of treat, you know, and with substances, you get that kind of reward kick in your brain. So by treating yourself, you're not depriving yourself completely. Um, you're not focusing too much on, I have to eat healthy. Um, but having that balance is so important. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I know when I was really struggling, there was such an immense sense of pleasure deprivation in my life. And I mean that. And when it comes to food, when it comes to fun, when it comes to like literally anything, like I, my world became very small. And again, my brain was not even able to get to a point where I was like, you are allowed to enjoy these things and you can go have fun and do whatever else. And that also came to like things like food and desserts. And then, you know, when I was going through this binging and purging phase, I was so deprived of everything throughout the day. I wouldn't let myself do anything fun. I was like, oh, I don't deserve to do this. I ate so bad yesterday. Like there was such this kind of self-flagellation kind of mentality feeling going of like feeling unworthy and so then it would be binging on like you know for example all these desserts and all these foods to get that hit of dopamine that hit that hit of feel good that i deprived myself of instead of just working in and having that balance and not having to be this like all or nothing like no pleasure and then all this kind of false pleasure with like just a huge hit of food but working it into like okay yeah it doesn't have to be black and white all or nothing like i can have you know, be eating all these like normal, you know, healthy nutritional foods and well as like having the dessert and not having it feel chaotic and out of control because it's the, the restriction, I, like what I say is restriction creates rebellion and allowance creates space for choice. And when we're restricting things that we that bring us joy and pleasure, whether it be food, whether it be anything really in life. And it, we right. have that kind of, you know, we want to kind of just like push back on it and knowing like you're worthy of pleasure and you're worthy of eating dessert and you're worthy of, you know, 
going and doing the trip or whatever that is that brings you joy and you don't have to earn it. And I think a lot of the time when we're struggling with addiction or struggling with recovery, we feel like we're never good enough and we've never, we never deserve it. We haven't earned something. And I think that the core of it, that fuels a lot of it. And when we can start to kind of very intentionally add in some pleasure and add in some things that bring us joy and kind of start to fill in our life, instead of just making everything so hyper-focused on food in our body, it starts to shift how we think about things and it just, our whole life will start to ultimately change for the better. That was a bit of a tangent, but. (laughs) And that got me thinking about exercise too and how important that fits in with the balance and not overdoing it as well. Cause I've seen that so much in the, the work that I do. Um, when somebody is not using the substance of choice, they start hyper-focusing on, um, right, right now we have, a the clients that we have are men. So they're, they're focused on bodybuilding and working out and they're constantly doing it. And then they come to me like, I'm so sore. I need an ice pack. I need a hot pack. I'm like, how much are you exercising? Oh, um, you know, three hours a day. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, um, I see a lot of like that, you know, overdoing it. Um, so that is hard to have a tough, it's a tough balance because um, it's, you know, crucial for improving our mood, our sleep, uh, overall health, um, stress, digestion, and, you know, just in general, I think it would be helpful long-term in recovery to be active. But um, I do see a lot of people with the, the symptom substitution, we call it, so, you know, they are swapping one addiction for the other. And the American Psych Association actually says that too much can be different for everybody. So that's when you start to see the diagnostic um, DSM-5 within the guidelines. Like, okay, are you becoming obsessed with this? Is it escalating to like more frequent and more intense? Like you mentioned earlier with episodes of binging and purging. Um, is it becoming, um, you know, are you sacrificing everything you're interested in? to exercise and are you, you know, are you just continuing to do it despite all the injuries, despite de- being dehydrated, not having energy for other things? It's just, it's a very slippery slope. It's such a slippery slope. And what makes it even slipperier is the fact that our society will praise you for it. You know, I posted the other day, like I remember I had had an extra s'more Cause I hadn't eaten anything all day. And I was at this, you know, I was up my, with my boyfriend at this like cottage in Quebec. And I woke up at, I think it was 5am and I went on a 20 kilometer run because I was so afraid of having those calories in my body. And I was so afraid of what would happen. And I knew I wasn't going to get to the gym that day. And it was like this compulsive, like I had to go exercise. And I was running and I remember I was wearing these like head sneakers because I didn't bring running shoes. And I had these shorts on that weren't meant for running. And I didn't, because I had slept, we'd slept in this kind of like tent thing. I didn't have any, like I couldn't charge my phone, but I wanted to track how far I'd gone. So I knew how many calories I burned. So I didn't have any music playing. All I had was like map my run on. So it's just like 20 kilometers of silence. (laughs) I was like, that's too much. Like looking back, like that's a red flag. But then the funny thing is like, like, you know, I come back from my run and people are starting to get up and, oh my God, Victoria, that's amazing. You're so, you're so motivated. I wish I could be like you. And it's like any kind of feelings of, oh, maybe this is too much. Maybe this is sickness. It, It gets thrown into this, oh man, you're so strong. Like, I wish I could do what you're doing. 
instead of being like, whoa, like, oh, you're missing, you know, events to go and exercise right now, or you're, you're going to the gym for three hours a day. Like these should be red flags in our society that we should maybe check in our friends. Like, Hey, what's going on with you? Are you okay? What's, what's up? Like, I noticed that you've been to the gym three times today. It's like, you know, those kind of things. And so getting curious uh, with ourselves as well as others, instead of just assuming that they're really motivated, have a lot of willpower, you know, I think sometimes having a lot of willpower is like a code word for sometimes they're sick and something is going on and having that be a conversation. And like you said, it can be different for other, like for everyone in terms of what exercise addiction can look like and kind of swapping out what it is that we're kind of addicted to. And it can be more praised, you know, to be going to the gym addicted, like addicted to going to the gym versus a, a substance, but it ultimately signals like, yeah, sometimes there's something else going on, right? And we need to kind of look at that. Yeah. And I mean, for, for those individuals and for yourself, I'm sure it felt so real in your head. You know, it felt like this, this you were compelled to do these things. And it felt, for me, when I had these eating disorder behaviors, I felt doom and gloom if I couldn't like purge my food, if I couldn't restrict. Um, and it was just so real in my head. But now looking back, that's when I'm like, you know, it does sound ridiculous. And maybe from an outsider that doesn't understand this disorder, it does sound ridiculous. And it's, it sounds like something I should be able to stop on my own. So that's why education is so important. Oh yeah. And it's, it's so real. Like it almost, it brings up so much emotion in me because I remember even the one time, like crawling on my hands and knees to my closet to get on my workout clothes, to go to the gym where one night I'd gone out and I remember had like was just so I had so many drugs in my system was so high but at the end of the night when the drugs were wearing off I was so hungry because I had not eaten in like two or three days and just binging on a huge amount of food and not being able to purge it all and then going to the gym and I hadn't slept in like three days and I was just messed up out of my mind and just being on the treadmill and just being like okay yeah I'm gonna do like, I, think, I don't even know. It was like, okay, I'm going to do at least a thousand calories at the gym today. So it was like 200 on calories on this machine, then 200 on this machine. And I was like hopping around from machine, machine, machine. And I was so tired. And I remember crying, being on the elliptical and just feeling like such a failure. And, but again, it, it was so real to me and I didn't know how to not be there. Like, I didn't know how to not do that. Like there, the, this, the amount of guilt and I couldn't even live with myself if I wasn't on that machine. And like that is well, like eating disorders are a mental illness and we have to treat them that way. Like we're not, you're not in your right mind when you're deprived and when you are restricting and when you're thinking that way, because I was not myself. And what also makes it difficult to want to reach out and get help because you think you can figure it out on your own. You think that you're, you know, tomorrow's a new day. I'll just be better. I'll just get back on track. I'll stop these behaviors. But it's because you're not operating, you know, rationally, like you said, you're not operating under that prefrontal cortex, that kind of best version of you. It's really, really hard to recover. It's really hard to, you know, take any kind of positive step because that part of your brain is so strong and can feel like it is you. And so reaching out and getting support and having someone who can just kind of help you see a different reality than maybe what you are currently seeing and knowing that doesn't mean anything about you, right? It doesn't mean that you're, you failed, that you're broken. It takes such strength to ask for help. I remember when I finally called Inksor Hotline or when I first talked to my mom about it and it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do and thank 
the fucking God that I did because I do not know if I would be here today if I hadn't made that move. And like, why am I, I'm like about to cry. Cause like, you know, like it's, it's, it's crazy how much my life changed from that moment when I decided that I was going to reach out and get help. And I'd been fighting it for so long. So I thought it meant I'd failed and that I was weak, but it, it takes a strong person to acknowledge that, Hey, I'm not okay. And I need someone to support me right now. And you are so worthy of that. You are so worthy of getting help and getting support and you deserve to live your life. We get one life and you deserve to live it. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Recognizing too. I mean, because flips happen, they happen in both, you know, substance abuse and eating disorder recovery, but knowing that it's not your fault and it's not a weakness on your part. Uh, both of these disorders are brain diseases for a reason. They, there are structural changes in the brain that happen and you are not weak for asking for help. When you slip, be honest with yourself. That is so important because it's such a slip, slippery slope again, where, you know, all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're back to square one. So you really need to be mindful of whenever these things crop up, whenever symptoms start, ask for help, talk to somebody. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know you had sent me some stats before and we were just kind of chatting before about this podcast because like we want to make sure that we impart the wisdom we need to impart. And one of the stats you'd sent was that 50% of individuals with eating disorders abused alcohol or illicit drugs, a rate that is five times higher than the general population. And that is crazy. Like That's a crazy number. <laughs> yeah. So I found that statistic on both the NIDA site um, and there were a, a couple others. Um, American Psychiatric Association, um, and then there was a Medline study too, but both of them, I mean, all of them had that 50%, and that, I mean, to me, that was, like, astronomical, so. um, Yeah, it's, it's wild, and so if you're someone who's struggling with addiction, you're struggling with eating disorder, you're not alone. It's not just you. There's a whole big wide world out there that is going through what you're going through. So knowing like you get help, you know, like it's, this is a, this is a solvable problem. This is something that you can work through. There's resources for you and we'll drop some into the show notes below as well to make sure that you get the help that you need. Um, but yeah, just knowing you're not, like I said, you're not in this alone. I thought it was, this was my issue. I thought this was everything else. Everyone else in the world had it figured out. And it was just Victoria who didn't have her shit together. And that's, that's not the case at all. And as well, I, I want to touch on what is HALT. So I kind of like briefly brought it up earlier. Um, but I think it's such an easy little acronym that can be so powerful to really help us to understand better relationship with food in our body. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I first heard about that acronym. Um, well, my, my dad actually, um, had an addiction problem to alcohol. And we, when I went to some meetings with him, um, I heard of the acronym and it was, am I H for hungry, uh, a for angry L for lonely T for tired. So when you put that together, when you're, when you start getting cravings to either, and now I use it for eating disorder symptoms, when I'm starting to feel this urge to, restrict when I'm starting to feel the urge to binge on food. I'm like, okay, well, what do I feel right now hungry for? And it's the situation. So it's hunger for something less tangible. Like, let's say, do I need affection? Is it something that I don't feel accomplished with? Um, Do I feel misunderstood? 
So that's where the H will come in for me um, and that you anyone can apply that to the, any situation. Like what what do I need? Like what am I hungry for? Uh, that and then the A, you know, anger, frustration. And are you hangry too? Uh, this can be a part of anything like road rage. I just sometimes little things can trigger me. <laughs> Uh, something comes up at work and I'm like, F it all. I just want to give in. But that's something, you know, just if you're angry, if you're frustrated, take a step back, take a breath, decompress, and then readdress the issue. Uh, am I lonely? Um, so eating away loneliness can only drive you further into isolation. And for me, it was hard to call a friend because I didn't have many friends. So for the L, um, the biggest thing for me was applying myself into volunteer work, into helping others with my work, because I'm not that, I'm not the phone person. I don't really like to make phone calls. I'm not really good at that, but you can find other ways to connect with others if you're not like, if you're not one to make the phone call. Um, and then lastly, being tired. Uh, this is just something, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, you're not gonna be able to think clearly. You're not gonna have enough energy for the day. Um, Establishing a bedtime routine, maybe and sticking with it would be my suggestion. Um, you know, unwind from all electronics and just paying attention to yourself really can help with relapse. Oh, that I love the way you explained that and kind of elaborated on some of those as well. Because especially with the lonely one, I think it's it's such a complex one because we're so often we're so lonely and food can feel like that comfort and feel like that friend and feel like love. Like you said, it really only drives us further away from those feelings of connection and looking at, you know, something like volunteering and reaching out. And maybe that's even through online work right now with, you know, people being like because of COVID and, but it's a way that you can start to kind of connect and have that sense of purpose, I think is so essential. And as well as like, what are you hungry for? Like sometimes like today I was like, when I got back from the dermatologist and I was so hot and I was just like, oh, I'm really hungry. I'm like, actually, I'm not hungry. I think I'm just hot and really tired. And it was funny, like I took a cold shower and then I accidentally fell asleep for three hours. And then I woke up and I was like, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> like I feel a thousand times better right now. Instead of, you know, in the past that might've been a binge and that might've been, and then a purge and, you know, a whole other slew of things and making it mean something about myself versus just addressing those kind of basic needs. There's like, oh yeah, I was actually just really tired and really hot and that was what it was and probably a bit dehydrated and all those kind of things. Um, yeah, so I absolutely love that. Thank you. And so I always ask this question on the podcast. And so you're on the spot. Oh, geez. If you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a tough one. No, it's not really. But I, so the theme of my podcast is weighing in on happy. And so kind of the, the idea that is no weight doesn't make us happy, changing our weight, all of these things. And so for you, what is something that makes you happy? For me, it's helping others. And that was what got me into treatment because I sure as hell wasn't going to do it for myself. Um, getting into treatment so I can be the better person for my clients. So I can be a role model for patients. That's what makes me happy is seeing somebody else smile, seeing somebody else be the healthiest person that they can be. Mm, I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. So on that note, 
I want to know, you know, where can people find you? Where can they go for more resources? All the things. Um, so I am on LinkedIn. I try to stay away from a lot of social, social media because that was to me a, a big trigger with my eating disorder. Um, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn mostly. Um, you can connect with me there. Uh, where I work, Walden Behavioral Health, it's a um, big corporation under Pyramid Healthcare. But that's also on my LinkedIn. If, if anybody is struggling out there with substance abuse or eating disorders, we actually have co-sister partners in the facility I work with that work with eating disorders as well called the Seeds of Hope. Um, so that's out there. And reaching out, there's, there's um, a person that you can connect with. Uh, it's, it's a hotline number, and that person would do an assessment on you and see if they can help in that way. Amazing. And we'll drop that information. So your link for the LinkedIn as well as hopefully that number and everything into the show notes below so that you guys can get the help that you need. And again, knowing you are worthy of getting help. It doesn't mean anything about you. I got help. You got help. You know, it's, it's such a marker of strength and just want to say thank you so much for joining me today and sharing so much of your incredible knowledge. Thank you so much, Victoria. I'm so grateful for this. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, then please, I invite you to rate and review. It means the world to me. And the more reviews and the more ratings I get, the easier it is for me to get incredible podcast guests. So help me help you help you help me to make this podcast even better by rating and reviewing on Apple. I would so appreciate you taking just a few seconds to do that. I would also love to have you join me on Instagram if you haven't already, and that is at Victoria Evans Official. I'm always responding to everyone in the DM, so please shoot me a message. I would love to chat. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're listening to this episode, screenshot and then tag me on Instagram so that I know you're listening and we can have more of a conversation about it there on Instagram. Additionally, I have my free private Facebook support group, Intuitive Eating and Body Confidence Community. So if you're looking for some more support and resources, definitely join me over there. And as always, if you go ahead to the show notes below, you'll find all the links of everything I've mentioned throughout this episode, as well as a little freebie there for you just to say thank you. All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. And until next week, I hope you have a fabulous day. Bye-bye.